Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us for issue four of our comics bracket. This week we will be discussing 1982's Annie, as well as 2011's Cowboys and Aliens. One of the films we're talking about this week, watching it, you'll understand a lot about American culture, and you can kind of look at it and look at the history of its making to get a sense for where America's coming from, where it's going, and the other film is Annie. <laughs> as some of you who follow us on Twitter might be aware, we are very excited for this matchup. They are widely different films. Honestly, I think this is kind of what this podcast maybe was made for, to put us in these weird positions. Exactly. Let's go ahead and get into plot summaries. In Annie, from 1982, sweet little orphan Annie dreams of parents while trying to escape from her orphaneer, the wicked Miss Hannigan. One day, a Miss Grace Farrell comes to rent an orphan for her billionaire employer, Mr. Warbucks, and picks Annie. Initially hostile, Warbucks warms to her, and she convinces him to help FDR with the New Deal. He decides to adopt her permanently, only to find out that she's waiting for her parents to come back for her. He promises to find them, announcing a record for just that purpose on the radio. Miss Hannigan's wickeder brother and his girlfriend conspire with Hannigan to pose to Annie's parents, who died years ago, and Hannigan kept that and their effects to herself. This allows him to convince Warbucks of their authenticity, and he hands over Annie and the reward. The other orphans escape the orphanarium, explain the scheme to Warbucks, and he mounts a rescue. Punjab, Warbucks's House wizard saves Annie just before she falls to her death. The brother is arrested and everyone parties. Sixty years prior, in the New Mexico Territory, an unnamed man wakes up in the middle of the desert with a strange metal bracelet and a wounded side. He wanders to the nearby town of Absolution, where a preacher treats his wounds. When the preacher asks how he received them, he can't remember. In fact, he can't even remember his own name. After getting into an argument with a local cattle baron's son, the sheriff realizes he's a wanted man. Jake Lonergan. Both Jake and the Cadillac are arrested, but as they're being transferred to the federal marshals, aliens attack the town. They kidnap a number of townspeople, and during the attack, Jake discovers that the bracelet is some sort of alien weapon and is able to take down one of the craft. The survivors decide to head out at first light to try and rescue the captured townsfolk. Along the way, they lose a few members in an ambush by the alien whose craft was shot down, run into Jake's old gang, get captured by some Apache natives, and find out that the woman traveling with them the whole time was was an alien from a different species and is here to help them defeat the bad aliens. The townsfolk, Apache, and outlaws form an alliance to rescue the prisoners and destroy the alien ship. A bloody battle ensues, but after the sacrifice of a few of the heroes, the townsfolk are rescued and the ship is destroyed as it tries to leave Earth. Jake is considered a hero, and the sheriff and cattle baron drop the criminal charges against him. The end. That was pretty succinct. There's a lot that happened in that movie. Oh yeah, I am cutting a lot for brevity's sake. Before we get to that, let's, let's talk about Annie. Uh, the quintessential American musical brought to life in probably the most well-known version. I feel like this is the one that people watch. I definitely see this is probably the most popular version. This is adapted from the Broadway musical, and this has had two other film adaptations that both came after this one. So the one we're talking about is 1982. There was another adaptation in 1999, as well as one in 2014. Also, before we get too far into Annie, I want to get this out of the way. I'm probably going to be a little harsher on Annie than I normally would. I hate musicals. And this is definitely not one of the musicals that lends itself well to people who don't like musicals. You can divide musicals into ones where the songs are just there as filler and ones where they advance the plot. 
This is definitely the former camp. There's a lot of characters singing about what they've already established for four to five minutes. Also, I'm going to be harsher on this one because I watched the 2014 Annie that does a way better job of adapting the musical for film, and it made me realize the ways in which this isn't successful. The trouble with film musicals is that people singing and dancing isn't that impressive because on some level you know they have infinite takes. So it's not them being impressive for two hours straight, it's them being impressive for a few hours a day and it's cut together. It doesn't have that same impact. The 2014 musical does a really cool thing where a lot of the instrumental for the songs comes from diegetics. Sheets flapping, doors closing, plates rattling. It's kind of like Annie by way of stomp. Composition and editing give you that sense of enjoyment that you would from seeing people singing and dancing on a real stage in front of you. And that allows you to be impressed with this medium in a way that you aren't with the version we're talking about. Although I will say this, Carol Burnett is amazing in this. Carol Burnett plays Miss Hannigan, a man crazy drunk, and she's having the time of her life. Her brother in the film is portrayed by Tim Curry, and when you get both of them on screen, it is hysterical. They're playing off each other incredibly well. And Tim Curry's girlfriend is Bernadette Peters. Bernadette Peters, Tim Curry, and Carol Burnett all in the same room. Ah, ah, this is what film is made for. Unfortunately, we don't get a lot of time to spend with Hannigan because the plot is focused on Annie, who is played by newcomer Eileen Quinn. I don't think she did much after this. She did a few voice roles and uh, a few TV things, but mostly she was doing Broadway, off-Broadway, that kind of stuff. And she's a teacher for a while. Honestly, musical theater is probably a better place for her. It's very apparent in this film that she does not have a lot of skill in acting. And I mean, I don't want to poo-poo a child for their skills because they're a kid but yeah I feel like if you want a, a child as your protagonist you want to have a kid who can really sell it and she can't always to a certain extent we might be spoiled we have a plethora of very excellent child actors in various films uh, there's the actor who played Mowgli in the live action jungle book directed by Favreau most of the kids from Stranger Things I'm sorry to keep bringing it back to this, but most of the kid actors from Annie 2014 are doing a pretty good job. So it may just be that there weren't systems in place to be able to develop that talent in that age bracket at the time. I mean, we're talking, what, 40-some years ago? Yeah, but I mean, I mean, Eileen was in Annie. She was in the stage musical as all the other orphans. The way they had it set up was they had a rotating cast of kids who were all trained to play all the orphans, and it was kind of, tonight you're Peggy, tonight you're Tracy. Honestly, that's not a bad way to do it. I'm sure that was a good way to downplay jealousy amongst the child actors. And it means you get to play a few different characters regularly, so you have to work on your acting chops. It's a good way to get an acting education if you're into that. Mm. Anyway, we're getting a bit away from the movie, but it's hard to separate this from the musical that it's an adaption of. Mm Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the other thing this is an adaptation from, and that's the original comic and radio play and all of the other things that Annie has been turned into in the almost hundred years that it has existed. Much like Dick Tracy, if the original writer were alive today and on Twitter, he would be uh, hashtag problematic quite a bit. He was anti-union, he was a big fan of governments getting to do whatever they want, he felt that the reason that the teenagers of the day were causing problems was because child labor laws didn't let them work as much as they should, and he took on the communists at one point. This is a guy who so hated FDR's New Deal that he killed off war Bucks because he felt that he could not exist in the same world as FDR did. <laughs> and then not until FDR 
died, did he resurrect Warbucks from the dead? If you've only seen the musical, you might not have a sense of what the anti-comics were like. They're a bit more adventure There's plots involving criminal gangs and the Nazis and stuff like that. Yeah, they're, they're probably something a little bit closer to, like, the adventures of Tintin. Almost like DuckTales, but everybody's actually human. You're not wrong. <laughs> A thing I do, I guess, grudgingly like about this, although mostly by the way of the musical, is that there are a few things that are kind of a middle finger to the original. Like, the musical and the film are clearly a big fan of FDR and his New Deal. Although, a thing I don't like about the film is that it cuts to the whole thing where Miss Hannigan is forcing the kids to be a sweatshop for her. And that was a whole critique of child labor that uh, the original writer was a fan of. So, the film winds up being less radical and critique than it could have been. Yeah, it also doesn't want to paint Warbucks with too bad of a brush which kind of ties its hands to what it can do. There's a little bit of the sweatshop stuff when Annie brings Sandy home and you see like the sewing machines in the background and all that sort of stuff but the film never really gets into it and Annie is not there for another 10 minutes. Want to talk about the Bolsheviks while we're here? Ugh, yeah. I left that out of my summary because it doesn't really matter per se, but there's a whole scene where Warbucks is in his office making bucks off of war, as you do, and some Bolsheviks break in and try to assassinate him because He's living proof that the American system really works and the Bolsheviks don't want anybody to know about that. If you're not a fan of capitalism, uh, that does not endear you to die to Warbucks at all. To give the film a little bit of credit, there is a line later in the film where Warbucks and his, um... Secretary? Secretary, assistant, are... Future wife. Yeah, are, you know, kind of flirting with each other, and she asks... Do you really just love money and power and capitalism? You know they're never going to love you back. Good line. It's a good line, although a little weak of a criticism of some of the other things that the film is and the original work is pushing. Yeah. Um, going back to the Bolsheviks a little bit, they are fought off by by Warbucks' two bodyguards, <laughs> Punjab, who you may remember from the summary, and the Asp. Punjab is ostensibly an Indian man with magical powers, played by a black man from Trinidad. And the Asp is a martial arts expert, and also Mr. Warbucks' driver. Who are from the comics? That's a whole thing. They're not in the original musical. The film was like, we should put that in there. This is what it needs. The Asp is played by a person of Asian descent. However, there's a number of musical numbers where they just go in real heavy with the gong and the very Chinese stereotype music, and it's incredibly uncomfortable. Literally, whenever he is the main focus of the choreography, that comes back. And then... Punjab, who in the comics definitely has magical powers and they are here. He can like hypnotize the dog and like make objects float. That's that's about the extent of it. Okay, so I don't want to get into complexities of the magic system in Annie the Musical, but Punjab is demonstrated as being able to levitate objects. Why does he have to untie his turban and tie it to the helicopter and climb down to save Annie from the bridge of the end when he could just levitate her? Because it's mage hand and there's a weight limit. I... okay. Sh I, I guess. <laughs> I guess. I... Uh. It's very bad. There's also the fact that 
They did not cast a person from the Indian subcontinent. They cast a black man from Trinidad. The only way we could get through it was deciding that Punjab and the Asp were running a long grift on Daddy Warbucks and playing off of his inherent racism to bolster their disguises. There was a lot of me trying to fill in my own plot when the film was not doing it for me. Speaking of filling in the plot, there's a bit where they go to the movies. In the musical, it's the musical number NYC. Here is just them watching Camille. So, welcome back to The Patent Corner. Patent's Corner. So pedantic. This film takes place in 1933. Camille came out in 1936. Also, I am baffled by them thinking, like, this is a movie that Annie, this precocious child who is, like, what, 9, 10? 10, almost 11. Uh, kid would be super into Camille, which is a Greta Garbo flick about a sex worker who's torn between the man who's keeping her in finery and the man she really loves while also dying of consumption. And you see, there's a good two or three minutes of Camille just played straight, intercut with Annie Warbucks and the rest reacting to it. Yeah, they also spoil the ending. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of sex work, let's go back and talk about Miss Hannigan. Oh, right. So we've established that Carol Dead is having a real fun time playing Miss Hannigan. However, that doesn't mean that there's not some issues with the character. So Miss Hannigan pretty much throws herself at any man who comes across her path is constantly inebriated. This is also during the 1930s, which means prohibition is going on, so she's making her own bathtub gin to keep up her habit. And the only response that she wants out of the children that she's overseeing is... All of these combined give you a really weird insight into the emotional and psychological framework of Miss Hannigan. This woman is deeply disturbed and she needs some sort of emotional connection in her life that is like healthy for her. Otherwise, she is going to have a very, very short and sad life. And I'm not saying that a person's inner turmoil and clear need for love justify abuse, but the film puts more effort into Miss Hannigan character and, and sadness than I think it does into some of the other characters who are actually supposed to be sympathetic and sad, which is an unusual choice. Yeah, I have a better understanding of Miss Hannigan's inner workings than I do Annie's. Honestly, that's mostly because Annie doesn't have any real problems. I mean, yeah, she's an orphan and she misses her parents, but she is able to outsmart the police and the dog catcher, and she is scrappy so she can take care of herself when she's out on the streets. And then she lucks into this life of luxury and is able to ingratiate herself with all of Warbucks's servants and even eventually him. Annie doesn't have any real problems. I think a part of that comes from the film's not using her themes that well. Annie's thing in the continuity of the musical and the movie and all that jazz and he's this incredibly resilient orphan who's bright and cheery and wonderful and that's kind of how she makes her way through life which fair enough and at no point does the film seem to put that in jeopardy there's never a point of her losing that inner sunshine and without that the emotional stakes aren't there sure there's the stakes of her being killed by tim curry and all that jazz but until then there's not really a lot of stakes that we care about also who in the 80s was not threatened to be murdered by tim curry he was expendable, like all of you. I'm grateful to you all for disposing of my network of spies and informers. Saved me a lot of trouble. Of course you will not die. Your eyes will be open, and you and Adam will be like gods 
yourselves. If he quits things up, I'll kill him. Mark my words. Even now, the evil seed of what you've done germinates within you. They all flow down here. We'll stack the bodies in the cellar, lock it, leave quietly one at a time, and forget that any of this ever happened. Also, who in the 80s wasn't incredibly cynical and kind of in need of that inner joy? The musical's from the 70s, so it doesn't quite mesh with the emotional landscape of the 80s that it came out right around when Reagan became a thing. If they'd worked that better, if they'd connected with where people were at the time and how Annie was in contrast with that, it might have been stronger. But it's not like Annie's the only ray of sunshine in a dark, cruel world. It's Annie's a ray of sunshine in a world that has two dark spots of the Hannigans and Warbucks, and everything else is fine. Mm -hmm. FDR is fine. We've got FDR here to save us all. Yeah, and by the end of the film, Warbucks is becoming less of a dark spot because Annie convinces him to back the New Deal and is softening his heart and maybe he can love this woman who obviously has feelings for him. And even Miss Hannigan really loves Annie deep down. She doesn't want her to be killed by her brother, Tim Curry, and I guess forgiven at the end and maybe dating Punjab? Did not catch that. Oh yeah, they hold hands for a bit and it's okay. That's a choice. Speaking of choices, I'm not sure if Annie ever finds out in this movie that her parents are dead. It's kind of a big deal. Yeah. You think that would, you know, come up. Speaking of a big deal, FDR's New Deal is a big part of this plot. And there's a bit where they go to talk to FDR about wealth inequality. And Annie just kind of starts singing. The musical, again, does a better job of working this song into this plot element. Here, it just kind of drops her mixtape on FDR, which, you know... I respect that as a marketing move. If you're a low-level president, you're like, all right, here's my chance. Here's my song about sunshine. We, we talk about how a lot of the other adaptations or the original musical have dealt with things better. There's also the fact that this movie is paced incredibly poorly. It's two hours long. They cut about half the songs, so there's this weird lack of energy. Where would you put them? Oh, they're all over. The movie scene is just a song in the musical. A few of the scenes of Warbucks trying to decide how he feels about Annie and like realizing that his heart grew three sizes that day are songs. How long is the musical? Long. Musicals are long. I know you wouldn't know this, but a musical is an evening thing. You don't do a double feature of a musical. <laughs> there's a reason there aren't a lot of two-part plays, and there's a reason that a lot of people have only seen the first half of Angels in America and are very confused what was happening. We're kind of ragging on Annie a lot. There are a few bits I enjoy. I don't know if I'm if this is from the musical or not, but there's a bit where Daddy of Warbucks is talking about his autocopter, and he talks about how it, it can land on a dime, whatever that may be. Which, it's a good line. It's a good establishing character line. Also a bit where uh, Miss Hannigan is a mess, and she just drinks from a vase, and that's probably the first water she's had all day. Assuming that wasn't just more gin. Let's turn our attentions in a very different direction. Cowboys and Aliens. This came out during Hollywood's blue period. Blue and orange, specifically. If you search Hollywood blue and orange or movie poster blue and orange, you will know exactly what we're talking about. And I mean, I get it. It's a Western. You're going to have a lot of yellow. And brown and orange and blue, blue skies. Part of this film definitely feels like a first-person shooter that came out around the same time. It's yeah. that brown. Although there are some locations that they scouted that are gorgeous. The cliffs in which the final battle take place in are these very stark white and it looks incredible and there's some other locations where you've got these really deep red earth um i think when they're meeting up with jake's old gang so they do try and vary it up a little bit it's mostly at the start of the film that it's super noticeable
possible. And that kind of gets you into this beige mindset. Speaking of beige, when the sun is out in this movie, the sun will come out tomorrow. It looks pretty good. The, the camera work is fine. The effects are good. I like the look of the ships. They are, how'd you put it? Proper orky. And you get to see a lot of the pretty landscape, like Daniel Craig's torso. But when it's dark, you can't see a dang thing. Yeah, the lighting is really bad during a lot of the night scenes or some of the scenes inside the caves or the alien ship. I think the worst offender is probably the raid on Absolution where they first get kidnapped. It's incredibly difficult to figure out what's going on, what's happening, and who's getting captured. If I'm being generous, I could say maybe they wanted you to feel that having no clue what's going on is, that's kind of what the villagers are going through. But I don't know. I... I expect better from a movie. <laughs> also, the whole scene is like that before the aliens show up, when most characters do know what's going on. They're all in the same place. The, the DM has told you you meet five feet from a tavern, and mm-hmm. some of you are in jail. I do want to compliment the movie on this, though. It does a good job of setting up four or five groups of characters and getting them all into one place for this event in ways that feel organic. It is narratively efficient. Yeah, it does a really great job of managing its ensemble cast, which some movies struggle to do, and we've talked about that before. I will, however, say, though, I think Daniel Craig was a very poor choice for this leading man. Yeah, I don't care. Craig has kind of made it his thing to, to have this very stony exterior and not be very emotive. Uh, if you take a look at his Bond films, especially Casino Royale, it's, it's very apparent there. Although surprisingly, we've seen him play against that earlier in this bracket in Road to Perdition, where he actually did a pretty good job as Connor Rooney. But here, his very stoic nature is front and center, and that combined with the amnesia makes it so that it's really difficult to care about his character. He doesn't know who he is, so why should we want to know who he is? I'm going to contrast this with, of all things, Anna Diop from uh, Titans, who plays Starfire, who also starts out with amnesia, but she does a really good job of portraying that confusion and curiosity, but also cunning, and figuring out who she is along the way. So it makes you want to know with her, because you care about her, as opposed to Daniel Craig. Literally every other character in the posse that goes to save the townsfolk, and even some that were captured, are more compelling than Jake Lonergan. Sam Rockwell is great. He plays the um, saloon owner slash doctor of the town. If you've seen Galaxy Quest, he's the same guy, but more worn down. Clancy Brown plays a preacher who tries to help Sam Rockwell learn how to shoot so he can defend himself and doesn't get made fun of as much from all of the cowboys. Harrison Ford is playing a grizzled war vet turned cattle baron who is surprisingly sinister and you're like, oh god, no, not Han Solo. Yeah, and he has some really compelling character growth throughout the film. Admittedly, his character growth is racist white man learns to be less racist, so there's that. Even Olivia Wilde, who's playing a space alien. Surprise. Surprise, yeah. Even she's a little bit more compelling because she seems a little too perfect for this dusty, windswept town, as you're kind of curious who she is, why she's like this, and why this pretty lady is walking around with this immaculate hair and a gun in the Wild West and no one's questioning it. There is also another member of the posse, the sheriff's grandson, who is coming along because he has no other family. So it's just him and his dog. And that's also another really compelling story. There's somewhat of this bond that he makes with Clancy Brown's preacher, as well as Harrison Ford's cattle rancher. And he actually gets a knife from Harrison Ford that they check off real hard, (laughs) but does eventually come back in the climax and saves his life. While we're, we're 
were talking about that Chekhov's knife. They, they talk about guns a lot in this film, and there's there's definitely this underlying theme of gun equaling penis. You pointed out earlier in the film, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. Then I started noticing it, like, oh, wow, is this intentional? It's weird. And I pointed this out even before the scene with Clancy Brown teaching Sam Rockwell how to shoot, and they had this line. Don't yank on it. It's not your pecker right here. It's not something that's uncommon in westerns or films about guns to draw that analogy. I just kind of wish they did more to point out how toxic it is. Also in The Posse is Nat, played by Adam Beach, who is an actual native actor. There are a number of native actors in this narrative. There are a number of native characters in this narrative who get to be their own people and have lines and dialogue and aren't just reduced to a stereotype. Nat has a growth arc that is, you know, I'm not saying it's great, but it's there. I care about him as a character. Given the West's history of uh, all of it, it's nice to have native characters front and center in this narrative, especially in this reverse colonialism narrative. The aliens are a metaphor for the white colonizers of this area, so I'm glad that it wasn't just a bunch of white people being colonized in this area that was native territory up until about five minutes ago. They do an interesting job with that, about having the aliens' motivation be so base as they are looking for gold. Well, that's just ridiculous. What are they going to do? Buy something? Harrison Ford was all of us in that moment. I like that addition. That's not in the comic. However, I think that is the only way that the film did something interesting with the aliens compared to the comic. I actually have a lot of issues with the way that this adaptation has handled that. Here, the aliens aren't given any sort of dialogue or speaking lines, not even via subtitles. And the aliens have technology, and they have these airplanes that they fly around and capture people in, and there's this one who is doing autopsies to figure out the weaknesses of the humans, but they're barely ever shown to have any amount of sentience or intelligence. Rather than this being a film about two factions fighting over territory and gold, it is filmed much more like a monster movie. There's a lot of points where the aliens are like running around on all fours or crawling along the walls and ceilings of their ship. I think because of that, the anti-colonialist nature of the narrative suffers because it's much easier to portray these as just monsters and not be able to draw the parallels between white colonizers and these aliens. Many narratives about invaders are either the sort of reverse colonialism thing where you have this more advanced group colonizing a less advanced group, or a sort of powerful but primitive invader that's taking things that are the rightfully belong to people who live there. You kind of have that vibe with these guys. One thing I will say for the aliens, until they try to cremate Olivia Wilde and she explains the plot to them, they think these are demons because Clancy Brown's like, eh, that's all I got. They're, they might be demons. We might be being punished for something, probably. And so I kind of like the way they go into this thinking they're fighting the forces of hell. It's kind of fun. It's kind of interesting seeing these people who have no context for what we can recognize as being aliens and spaceships and stuff, reacting to this in the only way they know how. A little bit of that is in the comics, although one of the characters in the comic is reading Jules Verne at the time. Honestly, kind of wish this film was a little bit closer to the comic. This film takes the idea of cowboys and aliens way too seriously which is the wrong move. This is clearly a camp fun fest, and I don't know why it wasn't. I think one of my favorite lines from the comic is made by the main character, who in the comic is named Zeke, and does not have amnesia at any point. And he's coming across some of this alien tech, and he makes a statement, All right, 
the green stuff explodes. Gotta remember that. That's the kind of stuff that I wanted out of this film. I really wanted this to be like, almost like Galaxy Quest. I think that was the right tone to aim for. I think if it was more Galaxy Quest-y, it probably would have had a little more energy too. Mm -hmm. um, or if it had more music. Why is the music better? We've more or less stopped making Westerns, but everybody knows. Another really weird thing. Um, we were talking a little bit about how Daniel Craig was n probably not the best choice for leading man. Part of that is he cannot nail down his accent. His poor, poor rogue was trying to escape. Yeah, uh, so his, his accent's kind of all over the place in this film. Uh, I think that's part of the reason why he isn't given much dialogue and why the character suffers for it. I think the best moment, though, is there's one point where he's meeting up with his old gang and the person who's taken over in his absence is an Irish immigrant and has that same sort of accent and they're having a heated discussion and at one point, because Craig is hearing the Irish accent from the other actor, just responds in that same accent. And I'm just like, wow. Honestly, they should have let him be Irish. Him being Irish or not being Irish would not have had a noticeable impact on the plot. It would have, in fact, made him more of an outsider, which would have added to this plot of these different outsiders coming together against this common threat. Yeah, and it, it's not even historically inaccurate. There are, are plenty of immigrants who moved to the West in search of gold. Mm-hmm. I do compliment this film on having a variety of indigenous characters and played by indigenous actors and Latinx characters played by Latinx actors. I wish they pushed it even more. That could have been really fun. My choice cast to replace Daniel Craig was Idris Elba because, I mean, we've seen he can have a lot of fun as a gunslinger. I do not aim with my hand. He who aims with his hand has forgotten the face of his father. I aim with my eye. And also, it'd be cool to have a black character in a Western. We rarely get that. There's like, they die by dawn and that's it. And Blazing Saddles. And Blazing Saddles. Yeah, there, there's not a single black character in this film. Uh, there's, I don't believe there's any Asians in the cast either. They were out there in the West. Uh, there's no reason why we couldn't have had them. Again, we're ragging a little bit. I do want to praise some things. There's some good foreshadowing exposition kind of stuff that goes on. Like we hear a lot about Harrison Ford's character before we actually meet him and that build up works. He is as scary as everybody's hyping him up to be. The way that everybody kind of knows each other helps with that a lot. Mm -hmm. It makes me believe this is a real living town that exists outside of just somewhere for aliens to happen. I think part of the reason we've been ragging on, we've been focusing a lot on the aliens and Craig, and I think those are the two weakest parts of the film. Mm -hmm. All the other characters are great. The arcs and interactions that they have are really solid. Clancy Brown's sacrifice to save the sheriff's son is really heartfelt and emotional. And it gives us this really great scene where the next morning after they've buried him, everyone else is riding off and Sam Rockwell's character's like, Hey, hey, wait, aren't we going to say some, say some words over? Um, Harrison Ford quips back, All he wanted to know is what to say is in the ground. That short little scene does a really great job of establishing what type of men everyone there is. You've got Sam Rockwell who is trying to be as good a man as possible in a environment that does not care and is unforgiving and he's shat on for it constantly. You got Harrison Ford who is incredibly practical and values tactics more than he values inner spiritual lives. One other thing that I should probably comment on. So we get the scene with the Apaches right after Olivia Wilde's character's 
quote-unquote dies. Uh, they toss her body on the fire, and then she comes back to life. And then she plot dubs everything about the aliens that are invading them. And she's like, We can find them. He knows where they are. No, I don't. I can't remember anything. You know, I couldn't even remember my own name. Nat, who is uh, translating for the Apache leadership, is like, He says they will take care of that. We, we get the whole Native American vision quest spiritual healing thing. It's not the worst. Fixing amnesia with that honestly seems like there's some merit to it. As a person who believes in a lot of stuff, I accept the validity of using spiritual practices to heal mental emotional wounds. It's not that this is beyond the limits of what I can accept for the science of this admittedly kind of tropey world anyway. It's that it plays into this whole magical natives thing. Exactly. It's not the fact that this one specific instance is the issue. It's the fact that it's used time and time and again and is a very damaging racist trope. I think with that, I'm ready to give my final decision. Inexplicably, I'm gonna say that I think Cowboys vs. Aliens is better than Annie. I am going to agree. I did not anticipate this kind of barely a blip on the radar film from 2011 that was crushed under the burgeoning MCU to win out against America's most lovable orphan. But it's a much better film. And we're not saying it doesn't have problems or that its problems are lesser than Annie's even. Yeah, but as a film, it is more watchable and there's more in there that I care about. I will say that I think the problems that Cowboys and Aliens has are much more subtle than the ones in Annie. Annie's are pretty blatant. Whereas Cowboys and Aliens, they're there, but there's more to unpack and figure out why they are the way they are than just oof. I also, I'm not gonna lie, part of it is I'm going to find Cowboys and Aliens much more interesting to talk about than Annie. Given that it's kind of the mystery of where this person came from thing, that would be more interesting a uh, second time through now that we know where he came from and who he is. This was my first time watching it. Was it yours? No, I, I had seen it before, but I probably seen it around the time it came out on DVD, so roughly six years ago. Sure, and I've seen Annie a fair few times in different incarnations because uh, I'm a gay, but <laughs> that didn't help me appreciate this one anymore. Mm. So with that, Cowboys and Aliens blast off. blasts off into round two, and uh, Annie is still searching for her parents. Coming up next week, as we enter the second half of round one we have teenage mutant ninja turtles nice versus spawn oh that is going to be interesting the original comics came out during pretty similar time periods so we'll we'll get to kind of talk about what the comics industry was like at the time if you want to make sure to catch that episode you can follow us on twitter facebook podbean spotify whatever floats your boat until then this has been the gratuitous pausing podcast thank you for tuning in